Marini's Media. Totally Football Show. Today, our Champions League journey continues with Season 3, 1994-95. From Welcome to Hell to Welcome to Van Gaal, we look back on a campaign which brought everything from Mario against Gary Walsh to the last great Dutch triumph. There's all of that and so much more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Akon there, nailing the zeitgeist with Locked Up. And we've got James Horncastle, Julian Laurence and Raphael Honigstein locked in, listener, for another jaunt with you. She'll join us back to oldie-timey football days. Lovely to see you all, fellows. Lovely to see you Hi, as well hello. there, James. Well, there they are. Fantastic, eh? 94-95. James Horncastle, where, what were you in 94-95? Uh, I was uh, still young. I was, uh, yeah, I can't remember which year I was in at school, but I remember vividly watching this this uh, season of Champions League. I think particularly this Gothenburg Manchester United game because that Gothenburg shirt has really stood in my kind of mind's eye as being just the the perfect kind of blue and white kind of stripe thickness kind of balance. If you know what I mean, it's mm. lovely. They nailed the width. They really did nail the width, which isn't easy to do. No. Did not. Julienne, 94-95 for you. I was uh, 14 and I was in secondary school in Paris. That was around my peak PhD years where I was going to the stadium a lot. <laughs> I thought you were going to say your peak. <laughs> as a player. Yeah, I wasn't bad. I wasn't no, bad then. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was peaking well in that years. But it was a memorable year for PhD and, and yeah, it was a good one to go to the stadium. All right. Well, we hear lots of your PhD memories, please. Rafa, what about you? I was in London, James. I was a student, second year student, and uh, I remember spending my Sundays in bed with you. Because <laughs> <laughs> usually I wouldn't get up before two, three o'clock on a Sunday, which was perfect time. Of course, what have you been for, doing the uh, night before? Oh, Saturdays in London in the mid nineties. I mean, there was there was always something to do, James. All right then. Well, hey, the red-haired dude, a.k.a. Mikey Kluwer, says, which piece of iconic commentary is your favourite from the Champions League? Offers, Mikey, surely Peter Drury on Manolas against Barcelona is the winner. What do you think, Rafa? Well, Peter Drury is always a winner, but um, two come to mind. One is a German one, Marcel Reif on Bayern winning the Champions League in 2001. It goes, Khan, die Bayern, die Bayern. That was great. And I love, I love... Gary Neville on uh, Fernando Torres scoring Chelsea's uh, second goal, I think, against Barcelona uh, on the way to the 2012 Champions League final and uh, eventual win. This could be the most dramatic story of the season. It's Torres to give Chelsea a place in the Champions League final. The headline has been written. Unbelievable. Jules. Uh, for me, on French television was the Zidane goal in the uh, in the final against uh, Bayer Leverkusen with Real Madrid. That volley, that left foot volley in the top corner, and uh, it was Quel but. because it was Zidane. Yeah, because it was Zidane, and I think it was Thierry Gillardi who 
Uh, sadly, passed away 12 years ago, but was the best the best commentator we've ever had in, on French television. It was uh, was pretty special, and the goal was so amazing that the two put together Gilardi's voice, the fact that it's a final, and and the goal itself made it very special. James, well, it's hard to look beyond uh, Costas Manlas, the Greek god in Rome, um, but similar time frame, Fabio Caressa, Sky Italia's commentator commentating on that Ronaldo bicycle kick against Juventus for Real Madrid in Turin, where he's just like, the king, the king. It's just very good. Extraordinary. I've always had a soft spot, despite the circumstances, for uh, Clive Tildesley when the first Liverpool goal goes in in Istanbul. It was Gerrard! Hello! Hello! Which uh, is (laughs) magnificent. You have to say. Yeah. Uh, anyway, right. Uh, we'll be talking much more about Champions League memories, of course, uh, today. A quick round of news, though, if we can. Uh, first of all, James, Juve's players and manager agreeing a four-month pay suspension, we hear from Italy, which is going to save the club an estimated €90 million. Euros, and not far half of that is Ronaldo's wages. <laughs> yes, Ronaldo uh, expected to give up uh, €10 million or at least... Um, defer it um, within the statement that Juventus puts out. If the season resumes um, within the next four months, they'll have a a conversation with the players and, and negotiate um, bringing their wages back up to normal levels um, in good faith. But Juventus getting ahead of all the other Italian clubs who were due to meet um, with the Players Association on, on Monday to, to discuss what to do uh, vis-a-vis player wages. I think the league in particular wants them to be suspended um, for the next three months. So we'll see uh, whether the rest of, of Serie A follows Juventus's lead. Barcelona's players have accepted a similar plan, a 70% pay cut. The club have announced Messi then posting though on his Instagram about it saying that someone inside uh, the club, one of the directors, had tried to put pressure on the players by making the subject public. So the tension between Barcelona's biggest star and the club continues there. Jules, sad news meanwhile from France. Yes, uh, Michel Hidalgo, the uh, the former France uh, head coach and also then uh, Marseille manager under, under Bernard Tapie, uh, passed away this week. Uh, he'd been ill for a few years, but he was the... The one who uh, who led that great team of Michel Platini and Alain Gires and all the other to the Euros '84 triumph in in Paris and also to the to the very famous '82 World Cup for France that ended up with a defeat against Rafa's Germany and and he was not just a, a wonderful manager in old school if you want very good at man- management he was also a very good player when he was in his playing years but he also had a great heart and a great heart sorry and he was a he was a lovely man and it's a it's a big loss for French football and it's a shame that we could not really give him a proper tribute that would have happened in normal circumstances because of everything that's going on. So unfortunately, he didn't really have the um, the goodbye that he deserved. Mm, indeed. All right. Elsewhere, there's been some transfer talk. Yes, really. Um, Marker, this Sunday, uh, with Real Madrid now the favourites to get hold of Rennes' extremely highly rated 17-year-old starlet, Eduardo Camavinga. Jules, does that tally with your understanding? Um, not completely, no. We know that they've been interested and they've been in talks with Kamavinga's dad and, and the whole family for a long time now. But my understanding is that he will stay at least for another year in France. And let's not forget, he's only 17. So it would be right, I think, for him and Wise to stay a bit longer before going to Real Madrid and going to such a big club. Even if Zidane is there as a manager, I, I think it would be wise for him to stay a bit longer. 
it's a shame because I mean Karim Benzema who would have had another Frenchman next to him but it's a good thing that it could be Kamavinga and not Olivier Giroud after after what Benzema had to say on Sunday night about his uh, his former teammate with France what did he have to say Jules? oh he, he put it very nicely he said uh, please let's not compare a Formula 1 car and a go-kart I am the Formula 1 car and he's the go-kart did and he I'm specify being kind to which him. one he was? did he have to specify? yeah 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 just nice. for people to be sure and then he did say he was kind to Giroud to compare him with a go-kart what, what's the beef between those <laughs> what's two? what's the backstory? yeah there is a special tape obviously the, the Valbuena sex tape uh, he goes back all the but even when they used to play together before uh, they had a couple of years a bit more than two years together in the national team they never really liked each other I mean it's like the cheese the, you said cheese and chalk is that what you say in English mm, they're, chalk they're and cheese different. chalk and cheese that's chalk it chalk and cheese they're too different too extreme but but yeah, obviously the the Valbuena sex tape, the fact that Benzema was dropped and really Giroud took his place in a way, although not directly. But I think Benzema has never really forgiven anyone, Giroud included, and Deschamps as well. So so the beef will always be there, as in like you know I I'm much better than you, and I think we, you no one can argue that Benzema is a much better, much more gifted, talented player than than Giroud is. I don't think that's the issue here. Uh, but Benzema has never really gone over the fact that Giroud uh, has more goals than him now, will have more caps, has won a World Cup that Benzema hasn't done. And I think that's really hard to swallow, I think, for Benzema. After a career like he's had to be hung up on something It's a shame, like isn't that. it? It is a shame, yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, Rafa, Bill reporting last week that Manuel Neuer and Bayern Munich might not sort out a new deal, particularly because they've signed another Neuer keeper, uh, Alexander Nubel from Schalke. Hmm, yeah, very good. Very topical German pun there, James. I'm impressed. It is over the length of the contract uh, where the disagreement lies. Neuer sees himself as ready and able to play on well into his late 30s. I think he wants possibly a deal until 2025. Uh, Bayern have only, as far as we understand, offered one that goes until 2023. Now, if that is the only disagreement, then you would think that there would be some middle ground to be found. This comes with a backdrop of Bayern having to renegotiate a whole host of important contracts amidst this uncertainty because Thiago, Alaba, Müller uh, and, and Neuer are all, all out of contract in 2021. So while they would like to keep all of them, uh, it makes it a little bit difficult with not really having much of an idea of who they might be able to sell, for example, in a transfer window, if there is indeed a transfer window. And um, at the same time, uh, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, the CEO, has come out and said they don't want to use the coronavirus crisis as an excuse to lower their bids and sort of lowball uh, their own players and they'll, they'll stay true to their previous offers. Um, so interesting, all four cases yet to be resolved. All right, well, that's literally all the news then. So uh, let's get on with the latest chapter of our Champions League story. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Finding pastel de natas in a London cafe? Special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus 
You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. So far, we've heard how the dastardly Bernard Tapie crooked and connived Marseille's way to the first Champions League title over Milan in 1993. And how the following year, Milan had the last laugh, beating Kreuz Barcelona 4-0 in Athens, bringing down the curtain on the Dream Team. Now, if you're sitting comfortably, it's time for Chapter 3. So, it's autumn 1994, Milan had won in Athens, Brazil had won in Pasadena and Rhythm of the Night was number one all over the world. What was that band's name though? Anyway, new Champions League season was getting underway and guess what? They changed the format again, now bringing in a group stage to start the thing off, then introducing quarterfinals and a second leg to the semis. That's more like it. The big story of the group stage were... Making an impression on a young James Horncastle, IFK Gothenburg, Swedish champions, in a group featuring Barcelona and Man United, coming out, James, on top. Yeah, and kind of picking up where Sweden had left off in the 1994 World Cup as well, where they surprised a lot of people um, in finishing in finishing third. But, I mean, this was the season, I suppose, where Jesper Blomkisk really kind of came onto the scene. Uh, with uh, performances against United, particularly in the one um, in Gothenburg and against Barcelona as, as well in the group because Gothenburg beat both these kind of, I suppose, traditional European elite in their own backyard. And also, you know, just fantastic to see someone like Thomas Ravelli, who uh, was such a big protagonist in that kind of Sweden side of the World Cup in the States. What have happened to Roger Gustafsson, the coach, after this fantastic run? It's, a, it's an interesting one because he actually, he was sacked after the following season and then didn't do anything between 95 and and, uh, and 03. And in 03, came back to the club just to coach in the academy and then had a few spells with the under-19s uh, of the, uh, you know, in the academy and then was caretaker manager of the first team again only for a couple of months. And then that was it. So he was based, that was his season and the following one, I guess. And then and then that's pretty much it. Mm. Interesting. Mm, sounds very intriguing. I, I I get the sense that this is not the whole story. So if somebody knows what happened in those years, do write in. We might find time for it. Later on, Akbar Chowdhury also remembering the clash between United and the young Jesper Blomqvist uh, giving the Red Devils the runaround for Gothenburg. United, of course, uh, who'd crashed out of the competition to Galatasaray in the previous season, this time got their revenge on the team from Istanbul. Uh, with a 4-0 win at Old Trafford, which included David Beckham's first Champions League goal. Once again, though, they had an early exit, failing to get out of this group, uh, this time thanks to a 4-0 defeat, 4-0 thumping, in fact, by Barcelona at the Camp Now. As Andy Fleming recalls, in goal that night was Gary Walsh because of the three foreigner rules, and it's fair to say that he had a bit of a struggle against Risto Stoichkov and Hormario, as he indeed recalls... Uh, I had no real idea I was playing until the morning of the game. The night before, Mick Hucknall had joined in with us during shooting practice and he'd actually scored past me. His shot went right through me. It was really embarrassing. Regarding the game, (laughs) says Gary, the funny thing is, apart from the four goals, I don't think I really had a save to make that night. Well, quite. Um, He apparently had to get the bus back afterwards, the bus back to his car at the airport with loads of uh, Man United fans. 
But as he says, I pulled my hat down. Most of them didn't recognize me. So there you go. If you don't know me by now. Well, wow. Watching this back. <laughs> yeah. But watching, watching this thing back, uh, what's, what strikes you is just how um, pedestrian and slow United's defense is when they came up against uh, Romario and Stojkov. Uh, they were just basically just constantly trying to get anywhere near the ball without much success. Um, Gary Pallister looks looks like a player from a different era, you know, compared to these guys. And it was it was crazy to see. I think um, at the time that United just couldn't really hold a candle to these sort of teams uh, in Europe. It took them a good few years in the Champions League before they really got going. Uh, easily forgotten now, I think. The, the game against Gothenburg, the one they lost 3-1 in, in Sweden. And you had Konchelski as, as right back as well, which meant that Simon Davis, who I completely forgotten actually played for Manchester United before, starting that game on the left-hand side. You Imagine having Contona on one side and then Simon Davis on the other side. It's just crazy. They had It, it was an average team. All right, well, that was what Man United and Gothenburg were doing. But meanwhile, over in France... Si tu l'emportes ailleurs, même si dans tes danses, d'autres dansent des heures. Okay, to Mame Encore, of course, by Celine Dion, which a young Jules was doing his slow dancing to uh, that year as uh, when he wasn't at the Parc des Princes watching PSG, who were champions of France, of course, and had turned up for the Champions League uh, this season, having, of course, decided not to the previous campaign. Uh, Jules, some team you had this time around. Yeah, it was a wonderful team. It, it really was. And, and some players at, at the peak of their, at least of their PhD career, if you think about George Weah and David Ginola, who were playing together up front, they were in a group, uh, in a group with Bayern, which was the, the other top teams in, really in that group. And they, they won twice home and away with, I don't think, any debate really on, on how much they deserve to win that game, those two games. And especially the one in Munich where George Weah scored that iconic goal where... 10 minutes from time, he got the ball near the touchline and then sort of dribbled past most of the Bayern defence and then had a shot from just outside the box right in the top corner. It was a wonderful goal. And it was a team that had a bit of everything, a lot of old-school defenders, quite aggressive and, and not very good on the ball. And then you add the ball, you get the ball to the artist and the likes of Valdo and then Rai, obviously. Even Daniel Bravo plus Ginola and Wea made that team so dangerous, I thought. And... The highlights of the of the season, obviously, in Europe would be the, the Barcelona uh, games home and away. But even in the group stages, you could feel something was happening. They had six games, six wins. And it, there was something there very interesting. And I think we, as fans, started dreaming that maybe it could be a, a year where they could achieve something good. It, of course, they didn't, as it turned out, beaten 3-0 by Milan in the semi-finals. But you had that illusion. You had that. You were in the stands, yeah. I think, there with your, your, with, with, uh, your pair, ton pair. With mon père, yeah, indeed, for the uh, the quarterfinal second leg, it was March the fifteenth. I will, I mean, I will never forget. It was, it was, it was just incredible. There was a, it was one-one draw in 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 Barcelona in the first leg, and again we've said many times this was not a great Barcelona side either. To be fair, uh, Baquero scored straight after the, the the break in the in the second leg in Paris, and the and the whole party Prince went so quiet. And then he looked like they were going to knock us out. And then Rice scored a header on a, on a corner by Valdo, 20 minutes from time. And then I think 83rd or 84th minute, Guérin, on the end where we were sat as well, uh, Guérin with a shot just from the edge of the box, scored that second goal, PSG won 2-1, and the whole place just went 
Like ballistic. Valdo, c'est du grand football, oh, Thierry. C'est du, du grand, grand, grand football. football. Allez, Vincent. Belle frappe. But. Oui, Vincent. But Allez, Vincent. Oui. It was a fantastic win. And it really was a team that had so much class when they were playing together. It was wonderful. It's just a shame in a way. I think Milan, of all the, the four semi-finalists, Milan were the, the, the worst team for us to face because they were so clinical. They were so good defensively that in those two semi-finals, I mean, the first The first leg in Paris, Junola, I think, hit the bar. And then Boban scored in the last minute of the game and that, that killed us. And then we lost in, in Italy 2-0. But Ajax at least were playing football. This Milan side was so clinical, so, so good defensively mm. uh, that it was not the right fit for us to play against. I think maybe, maybe Ajax would have won against us, but at least we would have had a better chance because it would have been two teams playing football if you want. Even, even Bayern would have probably been better than, than Milan in the semi-final. Well, Ajax, of course, were playing a lot of football that year. And then, again, sometimes, like in the final, they weren't. But let's, let's now move on to the team who really were the story of that Champions League campaign, the eventual winners, Ajax of Amsterdam. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Tall Swedish strikers with little ponytails, special. Winning the little jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus begumbleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Bubble Show from Muddy Knees Media. Vangelis, Conquest of Paradise from the movie 1492. Number one hit in the Netherlands uh, this season. And I like to think in the Van Gaal household too, as he marched around fashioning what would become one of world football's all-time great sides. Winners, as we say, of this Champions League campaign. Rafa, where do they stand in the pantheon of fruits? Well, they, they occupy a very unique position because um, they only had one fantastic year together before... The breakup started. Of course, they made it to the final the second year, but by then they were sort of a spent force. And they are emblematic of also um, the the change in, in dynamics in European football with the Bosman rule kicking in soon after, which, uh, of course, hastened that breakup and possibly made it very hard for a future Ajax to go as far, which, of course, made their run to the semi-final uh, last season all the more unforgettable still. But... I think there is a certain romantic and nostalgic um, factor attached to them because we know that they couldn't, unfortunately, stay together. And this was a, a very short-lived but very, very sweet spot for them. Well, the light that burns twice as bright burns for half as long. And they burn so very, very brightly, mm. of, of course. What stars they had. We were talking about the PSG lineup, but but uh, James Horncastle, incredible array of... 90s legends lining up for Van Gaal in that Dijk's team. Yeah, legends to be because a lot of them were at the start of their career and I think that's something that's always been exciting about Ajax is discovering talent along the way to a final. Um, a little bit like last year where all of a sudden you have De Ligt and De Jong um, become household names within the space of four to six months, at least in terms of transcending uh, Holland. I think it was very much the same with this team because I don't think a lot of people knew much about you know, teenager Clarence Seydorf or Edgar Davids or 
had seen Mark Overmars um, and the, the kind of pace that he brought down that uh, left-hand side. Um, remember, this was a time when you didn't have as much access to football as we well, we did until recently, um, where you could see games all around the world all the time. Um, so to see this young team come together, and yeah, I mentioned those names in midfield. You, you think of some of the guys coming off the bench, like uh, Kanu, like uh, Patrick Clivert, not Justin, his son, who's now playing. Um, and, and just having this kind of thread of youth throughout that team, which was, I think, I don't have the numbers to hand, but as an average age, will have been younger than that um, the side that reached the semi-finals last year. Aside from yeah, the inclusion of, of players like Frank Reichard, who is obviously at the end of his career, um, and Danny Blind. One name above all, Jules, Yari Litmanen. Yes, and and the more you watch again that season, especially and the, the the Champions League, I think in the league he scored something like twenty six goals or twenty seven goals the season before that, and then in that. In that Champions League year, he was just unstoppable. There's some games where he was bossing. He played, either they play in that 3-4-3 formation with a diamond midfield, which was never seen before, and very much what Van Gaal had worked on with those players. And that back three could sometimes be a back four when Rijkaard would drop a bit deeper. And you had Littmanen behind Ronald Boer, who was not a number nine, really, but he was a false number nine way, way before before Totti or Messi or whoever then really made that position known for everybody else. And and what Ronaldo Ball would do is free all that space for Littmanen to run into. And there's a goal he scored against Bayern Munich in the uh, semi-final, where it's exactly that format. The ball then passes the ball through to Littmanen and Littmanen just buries the finish. And he's just, I don't know, he was a a number 10, but also a number 9 and a a 9.5. And he was just so good technically, almost so perfect in every game, whatever the conditions uh, in terms of weather and stuff like that, it was it was really really beautiful to watch, and I remember it as a kid watching. And now for the show today, when you rewatch it all, it's just incredible the level that he was on. And I'm actually surprised if you look at it, he only left Ajax in '99, so he stayed way longer than he should probably have done because at that kind of level, you would have thought that a lot of much bigger club would have mm. come to get him like they came to get all the others. Oh, absolutely. In the course of that season and the following Champions League campaign, he scored 15 uh, goals in the competition. Joe de Haas offers in Amsterdam, Lipmanen is still regarded as the undisputed star of that team. He's the reason there are hundreds of 25-year-olds called Yari in the Netherlands. Weirdly, the foreign press tends to forget about him a bit. Yeah, you're right. And we finished third in the 95 Ballon d'Or behind Jorgen Klinsmann in second place. And where, I mean, I think Klinsmann got 40 points ahead, which I, I can't comprehend really. And then George Weah finished first. I think there was a lot of other factors for George Weah to win it that year. But, but Limanen surely should have either won it or at least finished second ahead of Klinsmann. Well, George Weah scored in all but one of the group stage games and ended up finishing Champions League top scorer. The Ballon d'Or is awarded by, I'm not mistaken here, Jules, France football. He was a player playing in France. And the other thing here is this is the first edition of the Ballon d'Or where players born outside of Europe were allowed to receive votes. So in some respects, I think in marking that, a player from outside of Europe was going to win it. Yeah, that's why I said to you, if you had listened, that there was other factors that... I'm just specifying for our listeners. (laughs) That's what they come for. (laughs) But just to finish, you know the best thing about this Ajax team as well is that they just didn't lose a single game in the Champions League 
all season in the well, group stage. Yeah, they had a run of 52 unbeaten matches. Indeed, George, they finished uh, the season as Dutch football's first and today only invincibles, not just in the Champions League, but also in the Eredivisie as well. 27 wins, 7 draws and no losses. 106 goals scored, 28 conceded. Well, they and Milan, who'd been drawn together in the group stage as it happened, with Ajax winning both of those group stage encounters 2-0, were, of course, to end up in the final together. In the quarterfinals, Ajax had breezed past Alan Boxage's split and Milan had beaten Benfica. Bayern, who'd seen off Gothenburg on away goals in the quarterfinals, then faced Ajax in the semi-finals, a game you referenced earlier on, Jules, and one that I think is re- recognised as probably that season's greatest performance, Rafa. Yes, it was. Came up against the Bayern side that were um, very, very young. Uh, this was the first professional season for the likes of uh, Marcus Babbel, Christian Nerlinger, Sami Kufur. And uh, arguably the most important player, the captain, Lothar Mateus, had uh, ruptured his Achilles in January. So he wasn't there for the knockout stages. And uh, ultimately, Bayern were just nowhere near the same level, both individually and certainly not collectively, to live with this Ajax side. Um, they had managed to draw at home in the first leg under Giovanni Trapattoni, playing um, a very uh, dour, uh, route one-ish kind of football. And in the second second leg, when they went behind and they had to chase the game, as soon as things opened up, um, Ajax completely took them apart. And it could have been easily seven, eight or nine goals as well. Um, there was just no comparing those two sides. Lipmana opening the scoring. Uh, Witticek, is that how you pronounce that? Master Witticek, yeah. Shortly before half-time. And then... Ajax retaking the lead in the second half with that absolute monster from Finidi George. Silvermas to deliver a decent cross. It's into the path of Finidi George who strikes it well. What a fabulous goal from Finidi George. That was a beautiful move where the ball was being laid off and uh, Bayern were very, very deep. No one at the edge of the box and Finidi George, as he often did, smashed it in from... From distance, I think that was sort of his trademark goal. And if you're thinking, you know, oh, Oliver Kahn, he's had no chance, you're wrong because it wasn't Oliver Kahn. <laughs> it was his lookalike, Sven Scheuer, in goal, who very much looks like your classic die-hard henchman uh, with a long blonde mane, um, but uh, not, not, very, not very good. Like your classic die-hard henchman. <laughs> Correct. Not cut out to last very long. He was uh, sent off in the game against uh, Gothenburg in the second leg after 20 minutes. But um, Bayern with, with nine men held on and came away with a 2-2 draw. Um, and incidentally, just to give you a bit more perspective, just how kind of average they were really that year, they only ever won two games in the entire European campaign. Uh, that was against Dynamo Kiev. Everything else was draws or defeats. Wow, 5-2 defeat on this occasion. Two uh, Ajax with a brace from Yari Lipman and the other goals we mentioned, Finity George, Frank de Boer and Mark Overmars. So on they went to the final, the Ernst Happel Stadion in Vienna. Milan, who'd beaten PSG 3-0, as I think I mentioned, Jules, uh, to reach the final for the third year running. It was their fifth final in seven years. Of course, they destroyed Barcelona the year before and they had Barazian Costa Curta available this time. Milan hadn't conceded a single goal in the knockouts. And they were very, very solid at the back. I think that they were playing on the break and Ajax were a bit wary of getting caught on the break. And it was your classic kind of 
underwhelming final where neither side really wants to make a mistake. And also Desai, who'd been magnificent uh, the year before, as we discussed on the last podcast, he was brilliant man-marking Lipman and out of the game. So essentially taking Ajax's most decisive player out of it, sticking to him, but also helping Albertini out in midfield. And Panucci, who'd been given a really hard time by Overmars in the group stage games as well, Panucci really grew in that game and ended up pinning Overmars back for, for large stages of it. But I think Raf is, is right um, that Milan went into this, I think, less sure of themselves in a final than they had ever been before, at least in this kind of Berlusconi era. Um, they were mindful of the fact that they hadn't addressed some of the problems of the year before. Yes, they'd won the final 4-0 against uh, Cruyff's Barcelona, but that was a team that had scored, what, 34 goals in 36 games or the other way around. They needed to go get a striker in the transfer window. They didn't do that, and they kind of struggled for goals, particularly uh, when Savicevic, who'd struck up quite a good partnership with Marco Simone, was injured um, and ended up not playing um, in this game. But Capello, looking back afterwards, was wondering how his team had lost because they hadn't really conceded any chances to Ajax in the 90 minutes, aside from the one that would ultimately decide the game. And even then, he was disappointed because he felt he had so many men behind the ball that they should have defended the chance better. Well, if the game was underwhelming, the Dutch commentary on Patrick Kluivert's goal certainly wasn't. Kluivert becoming the youngest player there to score in a European Cup final. He was only 18 years, 327 days old. Jules, uh, Paris Saint-Germain's director of football in action there. Yeah, form, former director of football who was useless for a year, much better football player than a, than a sporting director. But the, the funny thing in a way is that he was by far not the best player in that team and he was very young, obviously 18, but so, so were others, so young. And then we will only remember him and, and maybe in a way that didn't really serve him to score that goal and win that, that final because after that, he obviously left uh, very quickly, maybe quicker than he would have done had he not scored that goal. He would have maybe stayed a bit longer, matured a bit more. I'm not sure he was ready to leave when he left. But that goal changed everything so quickly for him and he became the, sort of the, the player that we singled out almost in that team when, as we've been explaining so so many others were much better than him in that campaign Lindmanen of course but, but even the double brothers Sidorf and David Overmars obviously even Finiti George and yet it's only the name of Clover after that final that sort of stayed up there and then I think I think had he stayed a bit longer at Ajax he would have maybe had a different career he left too early for me because of that goal he scored in that final uh, Johan Cruyff that must have really annoyed him watching uh, he, he had that long term rivalry with Van Hal and to see Van Hal beat the team that had only the previous year given him Johan Cruyff a, a lesson must have smarted. Carlos says, "Would Ajax winning the Champions League now be the equivalent of Ajax winning it back in ninety four ninety five? What's the relative difficulty of the two feats?" I think it's become harder now because the game is so stratified um, in an economic sense, and as Rafa said earlier, this was a pre Bosman rule time where you could keep players for longer um, and build around them. And um, yeah, this this Ajax team wasn't broken up completely immediately. Um, but I tend to think that this was still a continuation on the, 
the teams that we'd seen in the 70s, then the ones in the 80s, which produced Bergkamp, which produced Marco van Basten, and were able to achieve some some success with, with them and still be considered uh, relevant or more relevant than they have been um, of late prior to the run to the semi-finals that they had last year. And then again, produced this team, which went to which went to back-to-back finals. So... I think it's become more difficult now, um, particularly as, as elite European clubs from the top five leagues are recruiting younger and younger, um, You know, sometimes not even waiting uh, for, for players to have five, 10, 15 league games in a, in a competition like the Eredivisie or competitions in Brazil and, uh, and, and such like. So I think it's much more difficult now, James. Right. On a related note, perhaps, Fetzi asking, how come this team didn't have the same impact for Holland, for the national side, as, say, Pep's Barcelona had on Spain? I think the the accepted wisdom is that um, when it came to the national team, there were just all these big players and they found it very, very difficult to agree on things. That They were very outspoken about who should play and who shouldn't play about the tactics. For some reason, they went into these tournaments always as one of the favourites and found different ways of getting knocked out. And that is, I guess, the tragedy of that generation. But of course, they always have the Ajax success and later individual successes for different clubs, of course, to find solace in. You couldn't escape the kind of infighting between Dutch players because um, you look back at the, the first two games in the group stage, when Ruud Hullet was playing for Milan and he was immediately kind of booed, whistled by by local fans and was kind of targeted in the media because in 94 he'd refused to go to the World Cup in the States. There was kind of fallout from that. And then, of course, when you look at 96, the European Championships, when, you know, as Rafa was saying, they had this incredible generation of players. Um, and again, infighting just ended up what we now would say is francing themselves um, you know, sort of uh, during or prior to a, a major tournament and just self-sabotage really stopping them from um, from achieving uh, what their what, what their potential could have could have set them up for and let's not forget as well that this is very very young Ajax team with all those young Dutch players who could not have gone to the national team and have a, a direct impact like maybe some of the, the Spaniards had when, when Pep was there at Barcelona, who were not that young, or not as young, maybe. And also, this, this Ajax team have been playing together, some of those players, for five, six years, since they were 10, 11, 12. And you don't get this, that, that sort of same communion in a national team when you have to play with players from Feyenoord or for, from, from other clubs that you, you've never played with before. Whereas, so it's, it's hard, I think, to, to translate it into the national team side and what you could have offer to the national team at that age and considering that you've been playing so well at club level because you knew each other so well and not all those players could go straight into the Dutch team either. Uh, one other tweet here, this is from Soccer Football Forum who says, I'd like to hear a where are they now about that wonderful Ajax team. James, can you help out Soccer Football Forum? Yeah, well, van der Sar and Mark Overmars are part of the kind of front office recruitment staff Ajax, and you've got Clarence Sadoff, who owns a number of different restaurants in uh, in Milan, including Fingers, that wonderful Japanese fusion place. Um, he was more recently coaching a national side with Patrick Clivert, wasn't he? It was was it Cameroon. the was it Cameroon? Yeah, yeah Cameroon. Cameroon. Danny Blind was. Muddy knees, media. 
Totally Football Show. Today, our Champions League journey continues with Season 3, 1994-95. From Welcome to Hell to Welcome to Van Gaal, we look back on a campaign which brought everything from Romario against Gary Walsh to the last great Dutch triumph. There's all of that and so much more in this Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Akon there, nailing the zeitgeist with Locked Up. And we've got James Horncastle, Julian Laurence and Raphael Honigstein locked in, listener, for another jaunt with you. You'll join us back to oldie-timey football days. Lovely to see you all, fellows. Lovely to see you as well there, James. There they are. Fantastic, eh? 94-95. James Horncastle, where, what were you in 94-95? Uh, I was uh, still young. I was, uh, yeah, I can't remember which year I was in at school, but I remember vividly watching this this uh, season of Champions League. I think particularly this Gothenburg-Manchester United game because that Gothenburg shirt has really stood in my kind of mind's eye as being just the, the perfect kind of blue and white kind of stripe thickness kind of balance, if you know what I mean. It's mm. lovely. They nailed the width. They really did nail the width, which isn't easy to do. No. Indeed not. Julien, 94-95 for you. I was uh, 14 and I was in secondary school in Paris. That was around my peak PSG years where I was going to the stadium a lot. <laughs> you were going to say your peak. <laughs> as a player. Yeah, I wasn't bad. I wasn't no, bad then. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was peaking well in that years. But it was a memorable year for PSG and, and yeah, it was a good one to go to the stadium. All right. Well, we hear lots of your PSG memories, please. Rafa, what about you? I was in London, James. I was a student, second year student, and uh, I remember spending my Sundays in bed with you. Because <laughs> <laughs> usually I wouldn't get up before two, three o'clock on a Sunday, which is perfect tell me time. Of course, what have you been for, doing the uh, night before? Oh, Saturdays in London in the mid nineties. I mean, there was there was always something to do, James. All right then. Well, hey, the red-haired dude, a.k.a. Mikey Kluwer, says, which piece of iconic commentary is your favourite from the Champions League? Offers, Mikey, surely Peter Drury on Manolas against Barcelona is the winner. What do you think, Rafa? Well, Peter Drury is always a winner, but um, two come to mind. One is a German one, Marcel Reif on Bayern winning the Champions League in 2001. It goes, Khan, die Bayern, die Bayern. That was great. And I love, I love... Gary Neville on uh, Fernando Torres scoring Chelsea's uh, second goal, I think, against Barcelona uh, on the way to the 2012 Champions League final and uh, eventual win. This could be the most dramatic story of the season. It's Torres to give Chelsea a place in the Champions League final. The headline has been written. Unbelievable. Jules. Uh, for me, on French television was the Zidane goal in the uh, in the final against uh, Bayer Leverkusen with Real Madrid. That volley, that left foot volley in the top corner, and uh, it was Quel but. because it was Zidane. Yeah, because it was Zidane, and I think it was Thierry Gillardi who uh, 
uh, sadly passed away 12 years ago, but was the best the best commentator we've ever had in, on French television. It was uh, was pretty special, and the goal was so amazing that the two put together Gilardi's voice, the fact that it's a final, and and the goal itself made it very special. James, well, it's hard to look beyond uh, Costas Manlas, the Greek god in Rome, um, but similar time frame, Fabio Caressa, Sky Italia's commentator commentating on that Ronaldo bicycle kick against Juventus for Real Madrid in Turin, where he's just like, the king, the king. It's just very good. Extraordinary. I've always had a soft spot, despite the circumstances, for uh, Clive Tildesley when the first Liverpool goal goes in in Istanbul. In towards Gerrard! Hello! Hello! Which uh, is <laughs> magnificent. You have to say. Uh, Anyway, right. uh, We'll be talking much more about Champions League memories, of course, uh, today. A quick round of news, though, if we can. Uh, First of all, James, Juve's players and manager agreeing a four-month pay suspension, we hear from Italy, which is going to save the club an estimated 90 million euros. Not far half of that is Ronaldo's wages. (laughs) Yes, Ronaldo uh, expected to give up uh, 10 million or at least... Um, defer it um, within the statement that Juventus puts out. If the season resumes um, within the next four months, they'll have a a conversation with the players and, and negotiate um, bringing their wages back up to normal levels um, in good faith. But Juventus getting ahead of all the other Italian clubs who were due to meet um, with the Players Association on on Monday to to discuss what to do uh, vis-a-vis player wages. I think the league in particular wants them to be suspended um, for the next three months. So we'll see uh, whether the rest of of Serie A follows Juventus's lead. Barcelona's players have accepted a similar plan, a 70% pay cut. The club have announced Messi then posting though on his Instagram about it saying that someone inside uh, the club, one of the directors, had tried to put pressure on the players by making the subject public. So the tension between Barcelona's biggest star and the club continues there. Jules, sad news meanwhile from France. Yes, uh, Michel Hidalgo, the uh, the former France uh, head coach and also then uh, Marseille manager under, under Bernard Tapie, uh, passed away this week. Uh, he'd been ill for a few years, but he was the... The one who uh, who led that great team of Michel Platini and Alain Gires and all the other to the Euros '84 triumph in in Paris and also to the to the very famous '82 World Cup for France that ended up with a defeat against Rafa's Germany and and he was not just a, a wonderful manager in old school if you want very good at man- management he was also a very good player when he was in his playing years but he also had a great heart and a great heart sorry and he was a he was a lovely man and it's a he's a big loss for French football and it's a shame that we could not really give him a proper tribute that would have happened in normal circumstances because of everything that's going on. So unfortunately, he didn't really have the um, the goodbye that he deserved. Mm, indeed. All right. Elsewhere, there's been some transfer talk. Yes, really. Um, Marker, this Sunday, uh, with Real Madrid now the favourites to get hold of Ren's extremely highly rated 17-year-old starlet, Eduardo Camavinga Jules. Does that tally with your understanding? Um, not completely, no. We know that they've been interested and they've been in talks with Kamavinga's dad and, and the whole family for a long time now. But my understanding is that he will stay at least for another year in France. And let's not forget, he's only 17. So it would be right, I think, for him and Wise to stay a bit longer before going to Real Madrid and going to such a big club. Even if Zidane is there as a manager, I, I think it would be wise for him to stay a bit longer. 
it's a shame because I mean Karim Benzema who would have had another Frenchman next to him but it's a good thing that it could become Avinga and not Olivier Giroud after after what Benzema had to say on Sunday night about his uh, his former teammate with France what did he have to say Jules? Oh, he, he put it very nicely he said uh, please let's not compare a Formula 1 car and a go-kart I am the Formula One car and he's the go kart. Did and he I'm specify which one he was? Did he have to specify? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just nice. for people to be sure. And then he did say he was kind to Giroud to compare him with a go kart. What, what's the beef between those <laughs> what's two? What's the backstory? Yeah. There is a special tape, obviously, the, the Valbuena sex tape. Uh, he goes back all the time. But even when they used to play together before, uh, they had a couple of years, a bit more than two years together in the national team. They never really liked each other. I mean, it's like. The cheese, the, you said cheese and chalk? Is that what you say in English? Mm, the, chalk the and cheese. Different. Chalk and cheese, cheese that's chalk. it. Chalk and cheese. They're too different, too extreme. But but yeah, obviously the, the Valbuena sex tape, the fact that Benzema was dropped and really Giroud took his place in a way, although not directly, but I think Benzema has never really forgiven anyone, Giroud included and Deschamps as well. So, so the beef will always be there as in like, you know, I, I'm much better than you. And I think we, you, no one can argue that Benzema is a much better, much more gifted, talented player than, than Giroud is. I don't think that's the issue here. Uh, but Benzema has never really gone over the fact that Giroud uh, has more goals than him now, will have more caps, has won a World Cup that Benzema hasn't done. And I think that's really hard to swallow, I think, for Benzema. It's after a career like he's had to be hung up on something It's a shame, like isn't that. it? It is a shame, yeah. yeah. All right. Hey, Rafa, build reporting last week that Manuel Neuer and Bayern Munich might not sort out a new deal, particularly because they've signed another Neuer keeper, uh, Alexander Nubel from Schalke. Hmm, yeah, very good. Very topical German pun there, James. I'm impressed. It is over the length of the contract uh, okay. where the disagreement lies. Neuer sees himself as ready and able to play on well into his late 30s. I think he wants possibly a deal until 2025. Uh, Bayern have only, as far as we understand, offered one that goes until 2023. Now, if that is the only disagreement, then you would think that there would be some middle ground to be found. This comes with a backdrop of Bayern having to renegotiate a whole host of important contracts amidst this uncertainty because Thiago, Alaba, Müller uh, and, and Neuer are all, all out of contract in 2021. So... While they would like to keep all of them, uh, it makes it a little bit difficult with not really having much of an idea of who they might be able to sell, for example, in a transfer window, if there is indeed a transfer window. And um, at the same time, uh, Karl Rummenigge, the CEO, has come out and said they don't want to use the coronavirus crisis as an excuse to lower their bids and sort of lowball uh, their own players and they'll, they'll stay true to their previous offers. Um, so, interesting, all four cases yet to be resolved. All right, well, that's literally all the news then. So, uh, let's get on with the latest chapter of our Champions League story. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Finding pastel de natas in a London cafe? Special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games? Not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18 plus 
You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. So far, we've heard how the dastardly Bernard Tapie crooked and connived Marseille's way to the first Champions League title over Milan in 1993. And how the following year, Milan had the last laugh, beating Kreuz Barcelona 4-0 in Athens, bringing down the curtain on the Dream Team. Now, if you're sitting comfortably, it's time for Chapter 3. So, it's autumn 1994, Milan had won in Athens, Brazil had won in Pasadena and Rhythm of the Night was number one all over the world. What was that band's name though? Anyway, new Champions League season was getting underway and guess what? They changed the format again, now bringing in a group stage to start the thing off, then introducing quarterfinals and a second leg to the semis. That's more like it. The big story of the group stage were... Making an impression on a young James Horncastle, IFK Gothenburg, Swedish champions, in a group featuring Barcelona and Man United, coming out, James, on top. Yeah, and kind of picking up where Sweden had left off in the 1994 World Cup as well, where they surprised a lot of people um, in finishing in finishing third. But, I mean, this was the season, I suppose, where Jesper Blomkisk really kind of came onto the scene. Uh, with uh, performances against United, particularly in the one um, in Gothenburg and against Barcelona as, as well in the group, because Gothenburg beat both these kind of, I suppose, traditional European elite in their own backyard. And also, you know, just fantastic to see someone like Thomas Ravelli, who uh, was such a big protagonist in that kind of Sweden side of the World Cup in the States. What have happened to Roger Gustafsson, the coach, after this fantastic run? It's, a, it's an interesting one because he actually, he was sacked after the following season and then didn't do anything between 95 and and, uh, and 03. And in 03, came back to the club just to coach in the academy and then had a few spells with the under-19s uh, of the, uh, you know, in the academy and then was caretaker manager of the first team again only for a couple of months. And then that was it. So he was based, that was his season and the following one, I guess. And then and then that's pretty much it. Mm. Interesting. Mm, sounds very intriguing. I, I I get the sense that this is not the whole story. So if somebody knows what happened in those years, do write in. We might find time for it. Later on, Akbar Chowdhury uh, also remembering the clash between United and the young Jesper Blomqvist uh, giving the Red Devils the runaround for Gothenburg. United, of course, uh, who'd crashed out of the competition to Galatasaray in the previous season, this time got their revenge on the team from Istanbul. Uh, with a 4-0 win at Old Trafford, which included David Beckham's first Champions League goal. Once again, though, they had an early exit, failing to get out of this group, uh, this time thanks to a 4-0 defeat, 4-0 thumping, in fact, by Barcelona at the Camp Now. As Andy Fleming recalls, in goal that night was Gary Walsh because of the three foreigner rules. And it's fair to say that he had a bit of a struggle against Risto Stoichkov and Hormario, as he indeed recalls... Uh, I had no real idea I was playing until the morning of the game. The night before, Mick Hucknell had joined in with us during shooting practice and he'd actually scored past me. His shot went right through me. It was really embarrassing. Regarding the game, (laughs) says Gary, the funny thing is, apart from the four goals, I don't think I really had a save to make that night. Well, quite. Um, He apparently had to get the bus back afterwards, the bus back to his car at the airport with loads of uh, Man United fans. 
But as he says, I pulled my hat down. Most of them didn't recognize me. So there you go. If you don't know me by now. Wow. Watching this back. <laughs> yeah. But watching, watching this thing back, uh, what's, what strikes you is just how um, pedestrian and slow United's defense is when they came up against uh, Romario and Stojkov. Uh, they were just basically just constantly trying to get anywhere near the ball without much success. Um, Gary Pallister looks looks like a player from a different era, you know, compared to these guys. And it was it was crazy to see. I think um, at the time that United just couldn't really hold a candle to these sort of teams uh, in Europe. It took them a good few years in the Champions League before they really got going. Uh, easily forgotten now, I think. The, the game against Gothenburg, the one they lost 3-1 in, in Sweden. And you had Konchelskis as, as right back as well, which meant that Simon Davis, who I completely forgotten actually played for Manchester United before, starting that game on the left-hand side. You, you Imagine having Cantona on one side and then Simon Davis on the other side. It's just crazy. They had It, it was an average team. All right, well, that was what Man United and Gothenburg were doing. But meanwhile, over in France... Okay, to Meme Encore, of course, by Celine Dion, which a young Jules was doing his slow dancing to uh, that year as uh, when he wasn't at the Parc des Princes watching PSG, who were champions of France, of course, and had turned up for the Champions League uh, this season, having, of course, decided not to the previous campaign. Uh, Jules, some team you had this time around. Yeah, it was a wonderful team. It, it really was. And, and some players at, at the peak of their, at least of their PhD career, if you think about George Weah and David Ginola, who were playing together up front, they were in a group, uh, in a group with Bayern, which was the, the other top teams in, really in that group. And they, they won twice home and away with, I don't think, any debate really on, on how much they deserve to win that game, those two games, and especially the one in Munich where George Weah scored that iconic goal where... 10 minutes from time, he got the ball near the touchline and then sort of dribbled past most of the Bayern defence and then had a shot from just outside the box right in the top corner. It was a wonderful goal. And it was a team that had a bit of everything, a lot of old school defenders, quite aggressive and, and not very good on the ball. And then you add the ball, you get the ball to the artist and the likes of Valdo and then Rai, obviously, even Daniel Bravo, plus Ginola and Wea made that team so dangerous, I thought. And... The highlights of the of the season, obviously, in Europe would be the, the Barcelona uh, games home and away. But even in the group stages, you could feel something was happening. They had six games, six wins. And it, there was something there very interesting. And I think we, as fans, started dreaming that maybe it could be a, a year where they could achieve something good. It, of course, they didn't, as it turned out, beaten 3-0 by Milan in the semi-finals. But you had that illusion. You had that. You were in the stands, yeah. I think, there with your, your, with, with, uh, your pair, ton pair. With mon père, yeah, indeed, for the uh, the quarterfinal second leg, it was March the fifteenth. I will, I mean, I will never forget. It was, it was, it was just incredible. There was a, it was one-one draw in 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 Barcelona in the first leg, and again we've said many times this was not a great Barcelona side either. To be fair, uh, Baquero scored straight after the, the the break in the in the second leg in Paris, and the and the whole part of France went so quiet. And then he looked like they were going to knock us out. And then Rai scored a header on a, on a corner by Valdo, 20 minutes from time. And then I think 83rd or 84th minute, Guérin on the end where we were sat as well. Uh, Guérin with a shot just from the edge of the box. 
scored that second goal, PSG won 2-1, and the whole place just went in, like ballistic. Valdo, c'est du grand football, oh, Thierry. C'est du, du grand, grand, grand football. football. Allez, Vincent. Et but Oui, Vincent It was a fantastic win. It really was a team that had so much class when they were playing together. It was wonderful. It's just a shame in a way. I think Milan, of all the, the four semi-finalists, Milan were the, the, the worst team for us to face because they were so clinical, they were so good defensively that in those two semi-finals, I mean, the first, the first leg in Paris, Junola, I think, hit the bar and then Boban scored in the last minute of the game and that, that killed us and then we lost in, in Italy 2-0. But Ajax at least were playing football. This Milan side was so clinical, so, so good defensively. Mm. Uh, that it was not the right fit for us to play against. I think maybe maybe Ajax would have won against us, but at least we would have had a better chance because it would have been two teams playing football. If you want, even even Bayern would have probably been better than than Milan in the semi final. Well, Ajax, of course, were playing a lot of football that year, and then again sometimes, like in the final, they weren't. But let's let's now move on to the team who really were the story of that Champions League campaign, the eventual winners, Ajax of Amsterdam. I'm Jose Mourinho. I know a thing or two about being special. Tall Swedish strikers with little ponytails, special. Winning the daily jackpot on Paddy Power Games, not special. Understood, Jose. Yes, someone wins an average £40,000 jackpot every single day. So if you win, don't think you're special. Daily Jackpots by Paddy Power Games. Jackpots must be awarded by 11pm and vary from day to day. Jackpot is shared with other operators. Available on selected games. T's and C's at paddypower.com. 18plusbegambleware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Vangelis, Conquest of Paradise from the movie 1492. Number one hit in the Netherlands this season. And I like to think in the Van Gaal household too, as he marched around fashioning what would become one of world football's all-time great sides. Winners, as we say, of this Champions League campaign. Rafa, where do they stand in the pantheon of fruits? Well, they, they occupy a very unique position because um, they only had one fantastic year together before the breakup started. Of course, they made it to the final the second year, but by then they were sort of a spent force and they are emblematic of also um, the the change in, in dynamics in European football with the Bosman rule kicking in soon after, which uh, of course hastened that breakup and possibly made it very hard for a future Ajax to go as far, which of course made their run to the semi-final uh, last season all the more unforgettable still. But I think there is a certain romantic and nostalgic um, factor attached to them because we know that they couldn't, unfortunately, stay together. And this was a, a very short-lived but very, very sweet spot for them. Well, the light that burns twice as bright burns for half as long. And they burn so very, very brightly, mm. of, of course. What stars they had. We were talking about the PSG lineup, but but uh, James Horncastle, incredible array of 90s legends lining up for Van Gaal in that Dijk team. Yeah, legends to be because a lot of them were at the start of their career and I think that's something that's always been exciting about Ajax is discovering talent along the way to a final. Um, a little bit like last year where all of a sudden you have De Ligt and De Jong um, become household names within the space of four to six months, at least in terms of transcending uh, Holland. I think it was very much the same with this team because I don't think a lot of 
people knew much about you know, teenager Clarence Seedorf or Edgar Davids or had seen Mark Overmars um, and the, the kind of pace that he brought down that uh, left-hand side. Um, remember, this was a time when you didn't have as much access to football as we well, we did until recently, um, where you could see games all around the world all the time. Um, so to see this young team come together, and you know, I mentioned those names in midfield, you, you think of some of the guys coming off the bench, like uh, Kanu, like uh, Patrick Clivert, not Justin, his son, who's now playing. Um, and And just having this kind of thread of youth throughout that team, which was, I think, I don't have the numbers to hand, but as an average age, will have been younger than that um, the side that reached the semi-finals last year. Aside from yeah, the inclusion of, of players like Frank Reitgard, who's obviously at the end of his career, um, and Danny Blind. One name above all, Jules, Yari Litmanen. Yes, and and the more you watch again that season, especially and the, the the Champions League, I think in the league he scored something like twenty six goals or twenty seven goals the season before that, and then in that. In that Champions League year, he was just unstoppable. There's some games where he was bossing. He played, either they played in that 3-4-3 formation with a diamond midfield, which was never seen before, and very much what Van Gaal had worked on with those players. And that back three could sometimes be a back four when Rijkaard would drop a bit deeper. And you had Littmanen behind Ronald de Boer, who was not a number nine, really, but he was a false number nine way, way before before Totti or Messi or whoever then really made that position known for everybody else. And, and what Ronaldo Ball would do is free all that space for Littmanen to run into. And there's a goal he scored against Bayern Munich in the uh, semi-final, where it's exactly that format. The ball then passes the ball through to Littmanen and Littmanen just buries the finish. And he's just, I don't know, he was a, a number 10, but also a number nine and a, a nine and a half. And he was just so good technically, almost so perfect in every game, whatever the conditions uh, in terms of weather and stuff like that, it was it was really really beautiful to watch, and I remember it as a kid watching. And now for the show today, when you rewatch it all, it's just incredible the level that he was on. And I'm actually surprised if you look at it, he only left Ajax in '99, so he stayed way longer than he should probably have done because at that kind of level, you would have thought that a lot of much bigger club would have mm. come to get him like they came to get all the others. Well, oh, absolutely. In the course of that season and the following Champions League campaign, he scored 15 uh, goals in the competition. Joe de Haas offers in Amsterdam, Lipmanen is still regarded as the undisputed star of that team. He's the reason there are hundreds of 25-year-olds called Yari in the Netherlands. Weirdly, the foreign press tends to forget about him a bit. Yeah, you're right. And we finished third in the 95 Ballon d'Or behind Jorgen Klinsmann in second place. And where, I mean, I think Klinsmann got 40 points ahead, which I, I can't comprehend really. And then George Weah finished first. I think there was a lot of other factors for George Weah to win it that year. But, but Limanen surely should have either won it or at least finished second ahead of Klinsmann. Well, George Weah scored in all but one of the group stage games and ended up finishing Champions League top scorer. The Ballon d'Or is awarded by, I'm not mistaken here, Jules, France football. He was a player playing yes. in France. And the other thing here is this is the first edition of the Ballon d'Or where players born outside of Europe were allowed to receive votes. So in some respects, I think in marking that, a player from outside of Europe was going to win it. Yeah, that's why I said to you, if you had listened, that there was other factors that... Yeah, I, I'm just specifying for our listeners. <laughs> you know, that's what they come for. <laughs> But just to finish, you know the best thing about this Ajax team as well is that they just didn't lose a single game in the Champions League 
all season in the well, group stage. Yeah, they had a run of 52 unbeaten matches. Indeed, Jules, they finished uh, the season as Dutch football's first and today only invincibles, not just in the Champions League, but also in the Eredivisie as well. 27 wins, 7 draws and no losses. 106 goals scored, 28 conceded. Well, they and Milan, who'd been drawn together in the group stage, as it happened, with Ajax winning both of those group stage encounters 2-0, were, of course, to end up in the final together. In the quarterfinals, Ajax had breezed past Alan Boxage's split and Milan had beaten Benfica. Bayern, who'd seen off Gothenburg on away goals in the quarterfinals, then faced Ajax in the semifinals, a game you referenced earlier on, Jules, and one that I think is re- recognised as probably that season's greatest performance, Rafa. Yes, it was. Came up against the Bayern side that were um, very, very young. Uh, this was the first professional season for the likes of uh, Marcus Babler, Christian Erlinger, Sami Kufur, and uh, arguably the most important player, the captain, Lothar Mateus, had uh, ruptured his Achilles in January, so he wasn't there for the knockout stages. And uh, ultimately, Bayern were just nowhere near the same level, both individually and certainly not collectively, to live with this Ajax side. Um, they had managed to draw at home in the first leg under Giovanni Trapattoni, playing um, a very uh, dour, uh, route one-ish kind of football. And in the second second leg, when they went behind and they had to chase the game, as soon as things opened up, um, Ajax completely took them apart. And it could have been easily seven, eight or nine goals as well. Um, there was just no comparing those two sides. Lipman opening the scoring. Uh, Witzicek, is that how you pronounce that? Master Witzicek, yeah. Shortly before half-time. And then... Ajax retaking the lead in the second half with that absolute monster from Finidi George. Silvermas to deliver a decent cross. It's into the path of Finidi George who strikes it well. What a fabulous goal from Finidi George. That was a beautiful move where the ball was being laid off and uh, Bayern were very, very deep. No one at the edge of the box and Finidi George, as he often did, smashed it in from... From distance, I think that was sort of his trademark goal. And if you're thinking, you know, oh, Oliver Kahn, he's had no chance, you're wrong because it wasn't Oliver Kahn. <laughs> it was his lookalike, Sven Scheuer, in goal, who very much looks like your classic die-hard henchman uh, with a long blonde mane, um, but uh, not, not, very, not very good. Like your classic die-hard henchman. <laughs> Correct. Not cut out to last very long. He was uh, sent off in the game against uh, Gothenburg in the second leg after 20 minutes. But um, Bayern with, with nine men held on and came away with a 2-2 draw. Um, and incidentally, just to give you a bit more perspective, just how kind of average they were really that year. They only ever won two games in the entire European campaign. Uh, that was against Dynamo Kiev. Everything else was draws or defeats. Wow. 5-2 defeat on this occasion. Two uh, Ajax with a brace from Yari Lipman and the other goals we mentioned, Infinity George. Frank de Boer and Mark Overmars. So on they went to the final, the Ernst Happel Stadion in Vienna. Milan, who'd beaten PSG 3-0, as I think I mentioned, Jules, uh, to reach the final for the third year running. It was their fifth final in seven years. Of course, they destroyed Barcelona the year before and they had Barese and Costa Curta available this time. Milan hadn't conceded a single goal in the knockouts. They were very, very solid at the back. I think that they were playing on the break and Ajax were a bit wary of getting caught on the break. And it was your classic kind of underwhelming final where 
Naivasat really wants to make a mistake. And also Desai, who'd been magnificent uh, the year before, as we discussed on the last podcast, he was brilliant man-marking Lipman and out of the game. So essentially taking Ajax's most decisive player out of it, sticking to him, but also helping Albertini out in midfield. And Panucci, who'd been given a really hard time by Overmars in the group stage games as well, Panucci really grew in that game and ended up pinning Overmars back for, for large stages of it. But I think Raf is, is right um, that Milan went into this, I think, less sure of themselves in a final than they had ever been before, at least in this kind of Berlusconi era. Um, they were mindful of the fact that they hadn't addressed some of the problems of the year before. Yes, they'd won the final 4-0 against uh, Cruyff's Barcelona, but that was a team that had scored, what, 34 goals in 36 games or the other way around. They needed to go get a striker in the transfer window. They didn't do that, and they kind of struggled for goals, particularly uh, when Savicevic, who'd struck up quite a good partnership with Marco Simone, was injured um, and ended up not playing um, in this game. But Capello, looking back afterwards, was wondering how his team had lost because they hadn't really conceded any chances to Ajax in the 90 minutes, aside from the one that would ultimately decide the game. And even then, he was disappointed because he felt he had so many men behind the ball that they should have defended the chance better. Well, if the game was underwhelming, the Dutch commentary on Patrick Kluivert's goal certainly wasn't. Kluivert becoming the youngest player there to score in a European Cup final. He was only 18 years, 327 days old. Jules, uh, Paris Saint-Germain's director of football in action there. Yeah, form, former director of football who was useless for a year, much better football player than a, than a sporting director. But the, the funny thing in a way is that he was by far not the best player in that team. And he was very young, obviously 18, but so, so were others, so young. And then we will only remember him and, and maybe in a way that didn't really serve him to score that goal and win that, that final because after that, he obviously left uh, very quickly, maybe quicker than he would have done had he not scored that goal. He would have maybe stayed a bit longer, matured a bit more. I'm not sure he was ready to leave when he left. But that goal changed everything so quickly for him and he became the, sort of the, the player that we singled out almost in that team when, as we've been explaining so so many others were much better than him in that campaign Lehmann of course but, but even the double brothers Sidorf and David Overmars obviously even Fini de George and yet it's only the name of Clover after that final that sort of stayed up there and then I think I think had he stayed a bit longer at Ajax he would have maybe had a different career he left too early for me because of that goal he scored in that final uh, Johan Cruyff that must have really annoyed him watching uh, he, he had that long term rivalry with Van Hal and to see Van Hal beat the team that had only the previous year given him Johan Cruyff a, a lesson must have smarted. Carlos says, "Would Ajax winning the Champions League now be the equivalent of Ajax winning it back in ninety four ninety five? What's the relative difficulty of the two feats?" I think it's become harder now because the game is so stratified um, in an economic sense, and as Rafa said earlier, this was a pre Bosman rule time where you could keep players for longer um, and build around them. And um, yeah, th this, this Ajax team wasn't broken up completely immediately. Um, but I tend to think that this was still a continuation on the, 
the teams that we'd seen in the 70s, then the ones in the 80s, which produced Bergkamp, which produced Marco van Basten, and were able to achieve some some success with, with them and still be considered uh, relevant or more relevant than they have been um, of late prior to the run to the semi-finals that they had last year. And then again, produce this team which went to which went to back-to-back finals so I think it's become more difficult now um, particularly as as elite European clubs from the top five leagues are recruiting younger and younger um, you know sometimes not even waiting uh, for, for players to have 5 10 15 league games in a, in a competition like the Eredivisie or competitions in Brazil and, uh, and and such like so I think it's much more difficult now James Right. On a related note, perhaps, Fetzi asking, how come this team didn't have the same impact for Holland, for the national side, as, say, Pep's Barcelona had on Spain? I think the the accepted wisdom is that um, when it came to the national team, there were just all these big players and they found it very, very difficult to agree on things. That They were very outspoken about who should play and who shouldn't play about the tactics for some reason they went into these tournaments always as one of the favorites and found different ways of getting knocked out and that is I guess the tragedy of that generation but of course they always have the Ajax success and later individual successes for different clubs of course to find solace in. You couldn't escape the kind of infighting between Dutch players because um, you look back at the the first two games in the group stage when Ruud Hullet was playing for Milan and he was immediately kind of booed, whistled by by local fans and was kind of targeted in the media because in 94 he'd refused to go to the World Cup in the States. There was kind of fallout from that. And then, of course, when you look at 96, the European Championships, when, you know, as Rafa was saying, they had this incredible generation of players. Um, and again, infighting just ended up what we now would say is francing themselves, um, yeah, sort of uh, during or prior to a, a major tournament, and just self sabotage really, stopping them from um, from achieving uh, what their what, what their potential could have could have set them up for. And let's not forget as well that this is very very young Ajax team with all those young Dutch players who could not have gone to the national team and have a direct impact like maybe some of the, the Spaniards had when, when Pep was there at Barcelona, who were not that young, or not as young, maybe. And also, this, this Ajax team have been playing together, some of those players, for five, six years, since they were 10, 11, 12. And you don't get this, that, that sort of same communion in a national team when you have to play with players from Feyenoord or for, from, from other clubs that you, you've never played with before. Whereas, so it's, it's hard, I think, to, to translate it into the national team side and what you could have offer to the national team at that age and considering that you've been playing so well at club level because you knew each other so well and not all those players could go straight into the Dutch team either. Uh, one other tweet here, this is from Soccer Football Forum who says, I'd like to hear uh, where are they now about that wonderful Ajax team? James, can you help out Soccer Football Forum? Yeah, well, Van der Sar and Mark Overmars are part of the kind of front office recruitment staff Ajax, and you've got Clarence Sadoff, who owns a number of different restaurants in uh, in Milan, including Fingers, that wonderful Japanese fusion place. Um, he was more recently coaching a national side with Patrick Cliver, wasn't he? It was was it Cameroon. the was it Cameroon? Yeah, yeah Cameroon. Cameroon. Yeah. Danny Blind was coach of the national team, as was Frank Reitgard, 
at, uh, at one stage. Didn't go so well for Danny Blint, although he did give an international debut to Matthijs De Ligt. Um, Edgar Davids was at Barnet. I bumped into him in the airport in Turin a year or so ago. He's, he was wearing a wonderful kind of um, duck shell blue uh, hoodie at the time. Uh, but that's where I lost track of him, I must say. If anyone else can chip in with the others, I would love to know what Carnu's doing. Right. So I think Patrick Clover is the head of the Barcelona Academy, if I'm not wrong. Um, well, one of his Marco- other sons, the one who's younger than Justin, is there, no? I think. Okay. Yeah. And even the youngest, youngest one, the one who's 10 or 11, I think, the last one, the last of four, he's got four boys. Yari Lehmann and I bumped into in Manchester last year at a classic football shirts event. And just as a kind of example of the iniquity of the way he's remembered in the, among the kind of the 90s football greats, he was actually a substitute for the panel uh, that night. They had various players there, Rude Hullet, I think um, uh, Juan Mata was along as well. But Yari Lehmann had been booked to basically be there in case somebody else dropped out, then he'd be allowed to come on the panel. Yari Lehmann, incredible. Um, we should also talk about Louis van Gaal, who has gone on to do all sorts of other things since. Rafa, if you look back at his career, which has contained so many extraordinary moments, I don't know if you'd like to pick out a favourite. And also, was this his finest hour as a manager? I think that was probably his uh, his finest moment um, with Ajax because Barcelona was was not an unequivocal success. I think certainly in the latter stages where he captained bringing more and more Dutchmen and um, the uh, rewards were were limited. Uh, Bayern, I think he will be remembered as somebody who laid the foundations for the um, success in the 2013 Champions League under Jupiankers and uh, being a good enough club to attract Pep Guardiola. So I think they will remember him fondly. And of course, with the Dutch, he had this great uh, run at the um, at the World Cup in Brazil, where um, you know they were one of the most exciting teams to watch but I guess a, a more eye-catching moment uh, in a different sense James was the the day when he dropped his trousers uh, at the Bayern team meeting to make the point um, that he either had very big balls and those were needed by his players uh, or there's a different version of this story going around um, according to uh, Luca Toni who told the story that uh, Van Gaal was saying does your football turn me on the answer is no, and he showed them uh, <laughs> that in a very literal way. I don't know which which one of the two versions I like I like better, but um, there is no doubt that this happened. We're just not entirely sure about the motivations behind it. I see, magnificent. Well, Ajax would be back the following year in the Champions League final, but that, of course, is a story for another time. How about next week on the Totally Football Show when we move on to season four of the Champions League? 95-96. For now, it's many thanks to you all, Jules, James and Rafa, and you, listener. We're going to be back with another Totally Show on Thursday, of course, featuring round two of the quiz. Already Alvaro Romeo of this parish has made it through to the quarterfinals with a blistering performance against Duncan Alexander in, in round one. We'll also, on Thursday, be looking at the third film in our Flicks and Kicks season, which is United Passions. Have, have any of you seen that? No, and I don't intend to. Wow, James. I've seen bits of it on a plane once. Right. Well, now's your opportunity. You have the time, and there's a free link up in my Twitter timeline. So jump on that and let us know 
your thoughts and uh, have a great time until we speak next guys thank you so much for being with us speak to you again soon on another euro podcast but now from all of us here it's goodbye you've been listening to the totally football show a muddy knees media production for sales and advertising please email sales at muddyneesmedia.com keep up to date with everything across our totally football network at the totally show on twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too the totally football show.com I'm Andrew Slavin from the Totally Scottish Football Show and I'm here to tell you why you should be listening to our Scottish show. Number one, it's full of insightful knowledge on Scottish football like this. It looks to me as though they've spent all their time working on things in training. We go on the pitch and then you just forget it, which happens with players who aren't very good. Number two, it's got Georgie Hatch's son. Number three, we get to talk about the spaghetti had. Look into it, you should. Anyway, you'll find us every Tuesday morning ready to inform you on the greatest league in world football. Just search for the Totally Scottish Football Show and we'll be there every Tuesday. Marini's Media.